0: Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF podcast. I first met Matthew Horn when we were both speaking at a digital music industry event in London about 10 years ago. I say we were both speaking, he was speaking. And I would have been had I not suddenly developed laryngitis and become completely incapable of making any sound whatsoever. All the same, somehow I managed to make myself sufficiently understood at the time, enough for us to stay in touch and eventually become good friends, which we are today. Back in those days, Matthew was the head of all things digital at Sony Music. Both before and since, he's had a colourful, diverse and, critically, influential series of roles at a number of organizations. These days he's head of product for Audio Network in London. That's still the case and I double-checked earlier today just to be sure things move pretty fast. Between the recording of this podcast episode a couple of months back and you getting to hear it today, Audio Network was sold to Entertainment One for a reported 215 million US dollars. Here's Matthew Horn, storyteller, digital music pioneer, and audio networker. Matthew Horn, thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning. Good morning. Um, So, you're chief product officer at Audio Network.
1: Let's start with Audio Network. What's Audio Network? Uh, We are a music company that makes music for film, television, advertising and increasingly just all the places you find digital video, which is pretty much everywhere now. Right, right, and uh, you commission the music? Yeah, we are. Um, we commission, record, mix, the whole thing at a super high quality. Um, we uh, we, are, we consider us a music publisher in some ways. We we find the composers and artists uh, out there and then we bring them together. Um, we're one of Abbey Road's largest customers, so we tend to do it at a very high quality, full
0: orchestras, you know, the, the real deal. Right, fantastic, and uh, so okay. Let's talk about your journey there, because uh, that's uh, for me. That's really the interesting bit. Let's start right at the beginning. What is the child Matthew Horn child uh, running around? Is it is it about technology? Is it about music? Is it
1: about uh, what was driving you? So I was a literature major to start. I mean, it was not technology or music really where I started. Um, I was a. I wanted to be a journalist. It was probably the strongest one. I was definitely after the, uh, the literary journalist. Era of you know the Tom Wolfs and the Hunter S. Thompson, maybe with less drugs right. um, yeah. at that time when I was young, less uh, but not none. I noticed. None. I didn't say yeah. I didn't say none, but you know you got to be careful with that. Uh, but it was definitely a time in which I was interested in in storytelling and telling a story in a very literary way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a big reader. Um, but growing up in San Francisco, you couldn't avoid the technology. I, I grew up in the Bay Area in San Francisco, uh, and I went to university at Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz. What did your uh, parents do, and how did that affect? My parents were both um, were both professionals, but they were the first in their in their uh, in their generation to go to college. So my my dad ran hospitals. Uh, in the Air Force. And my mom was a medical technologist. She was a hematologist. So science right. was both their backgrounds. Okay. And you, you rebelled by going to books? You know, they were, no, they were, ne- I mean, there was never a, a, a negative thing. I was never like, you should go do this thing. It was always just where we ended up, you know, and I was a huge reader. So, um, and I was alone on my, an in- in internal kid. So uh-huh. read a lot on my own and got kind of led to reading pretty much everything literature, books, magazines, the whole thing. Yeah,
0: and of course uh, San Francisco is not just a, a technology town, it's a music town.
1: Well, yeah, abs- uh, no, I, but you know the thing was when you left, when I left Santa Cruz um, thinking I was going to be a journalist, there really weren't a lot of choices in San Francisco magazine-wise. I mean, there were just there was Sunset Magazine, which is a magazine of the West as they describe it, which is mostly how to plant succulents in your garden and, and uh, in... And and I'd make a redwood deck. That's right. kind of what they did in the magazine. And you weren't gonna bust that wired. That open was not there. my world. That yeah. was not, But there was also Macworld magazine, right? And it's also the time that Wired was coming into being and Boing Boing, right? Boing Boing, Wired, and Might magazine were all Across the street from MacWorld magazine. When are we talking? Uh, this would have been 92, 93. Okay. Yeah, and so this so the technology companies are magazines are still a thing, right? Where yep. the internet's not a thing. And I so I joined. I ended up joining MacWorld after doing some stuff for Wired early on. Uh, I ended up joining MacWorld hired me as an editorial assistant, which I thought this is brilliant. I get to do a, a paid job that in and you know, I started writing for them. And I ended up writing most of the internet stuff that they did, right? So because it was starting and no one really thought it was that exciting, the editor in chief famously said to me, um, "You know, this is really going to be just a niche, right? It's like it's going to be like CB radio. This isn't going to go anywhere." Uh-huh. I disagreed from an early on. I saw the value of that, and so I wrote a column for Macworld for a couple of years called Net Smart. Um, probably the first column in a magazine for Macworld that was about the internet. Yep. Wrote one of the first reviews of Netscape Mosaic when it came out. FTP protocols, all the exciting. How many earth. stars did you give it? I, you know, I actually gave um, Mosaic uh, like three or four stars. And mostly because I thought this the potential here is amazing, right? I mean, right. This, is, this is a thousand flowers blooming. And the ability to publish yourself and personal. I, really, I actually thought personal pages was going to be it. That was going to be the thing I thought was most interesting. Justin uh, Hall was out there doing his own, you know, probably the first blog um, was Justin in that early time. So the first couple of pages go up and people's personal pages come online. Media companies weren't there. It was still an academics world and, you know, the whole World Wide Web Consortium and- uh, And the Wild West metaphor. Oh yeah, we were, you know, I <laughs> we at Macworld I, I eventually ended up, um, Making MacWorld Online, I, my my friend Suzanne and I founded MacWorld Online. So we did the first online uh, magazine, Racing Wired, to be first online with a magazine. Mm-hmm. Our first advertiser was Adobe, who bought out the entire run for you know six months of advertising. Where a little banner would run across the top, uh, and, you know, and we did some early audio stuff too, right? We got a we got a chance to um, to use the uh, real audio plugin. It was us in the White House who had the first beta of that. The White House got it, we got it. And I ended up putting up uh, about a 45 minute audio clip of Survivor Research Laboratories, the art group in San Francisco who basically, you know, make machines that battle each other and make noise. And it just sounded like, you know, two garbage trucks fucking basically is what it sounded like. There was like (laughs) huge, huge mess. Yeah, that's what you want on the internet. Yeah, Yeah. sorry about that, but that's what it was. Um, And Mark Pauline, who was a, you know, local San Francisco guy and I had a conversation about it. And we, we put it online and, you know, I think maybe, 500 people listened to that early audio clip and it was oh, you wow. know it was early that's
0: that's really interesting. I had no idea that Mark Pauline was uh, involved in that because he, yeah. he's so influential in the industrial scene. Yeah. the
1: uh, SRL was his baby, and it was all over San Francisco. You know, you you'd, you'd go under a, on a bridge, and Mark was you know setting up his machines and and having an, and you know getting in trouble with the police. And yeah, some robots made out of dead rabbits. And that totally, sort of yeah, thing all happened. kinds of. It was, it was, but it was a fun time. And Macworld didn't, you know, Macworld didn't stop me from doing that because they really didn't know what we were because it does doing. seem kind of counterculture. Oh no, it was not. I mean, Suzanne, Suzanne had been. Um, she was the editor of Macworld Online and Suzanne was a punk writer from, in very music and in shred music and she lived with Jello Biafra, the right, awesome yeah, of yeah. Kennedy's and so we were very much the alternative wing of the uh, the group. There was another guy, Thomas Gaweki who was PC World and he was the publisher of PC World and that was very much more corporate but the Macworld guys were all like, we had five people, they had like or something like So that. you were the prototypes of I'm a PC, I'm a Mac. Well, oh, we were totally, we were totally the opposite of like, you know what? Our uh, <laughs> our main programming guy had like purple hair, and it was yeah, it was definitely the punk version of the of the uh, the Mac group. Right. It was a pretty well established group. MacWorld was very profitable at that time, right? It was kind of just before we start losing the the Mac's influence at that point. But yeah, yeah. wow. And uh, but you didn't stay there. No, I Suzanne. Suzanne and I both left together. We um, she went to MSNBC. Um, as the editor of a TV show, or as the web editor, I think is what they called her, um, for a TV show called The Sight, which was a primetime television show, um, ran from 8 to 9 o'clock every weeknight on MSNBC when MSNBC launched. Right. So we were the web and television, we had a website and we had a TV show, and our host was the excellent Soledad O'Brien, who's now, you know, um, has gone through CNN and she now does her own thing online, but she was our host and... We had one of the world's first virtual characters. It was a 3D animated character that I named called Dev Null, which was a total inside <laughs> nerd joke. Yeah, uh, And Dev was our host character interacting with Soledad. And it took a a silicon graphics workstation the size of uh, this coffee table right. to run uh, at the time. And it was a puppeteer ran it, right? A person who actually did puppeteer uh, stuff to make it work. But, what was, the, was it kind of a max headroom? Yeah, sort of very thing? much, very much. He would talk and we were projected against a green screen and, and so that I'd interact in real time with this puppet. And right. it was actually voiced by uh, Leo Laporte, was the, the Leo who's done a ton of podcasting, early tech podcast guy and, uh, and, 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 and was a big part of the network when it launched. And Leo was the voice of Debno and how did you get into the music side of things? So, at, you know, right around ninety eight, after kind of doing this stuff in tech space, and I was enjoying it. I really was liking it. It was fun. It was exciting. The money started coming west, right? I mean, all of a sudden, the, the you got to realize this is the Yahoo was the big group at the time. Google was just coming up. It was you could tell the money was coming out, right? The, all the yeah. newspapers were putting offices out in uh, Silicon Valley, and they were all there to cover the money. But they were financial reporters. Very few people covering the cultural side of it, right? And I thought this isn't really where I want to be and I, I, I uh, suffered a pretty big breakup and a romantic ending of, of, of sorts and uh, went to to live in New York. Uh, uh-huh. And when I went to New York, my friend Peter, who was at Universal Music, said, I need someone to come help us figure out what Universal is going to do about their digital music strategy. Would you like to do that? Yeah. Um, and the time when I was at MSNBC, I was really the music, gaming and cultural what's what's happening with the arts uh, in in technology was my was my beat and so the idea of actually getting my hands on on the actual industry that was that was so, I was so interested in cuz I'd always been a huge music fan was really exciting mm-hmm. um and I, and I came in as a uh, I uh, think it's senior director of I don't know digital transformation or something ridiculous title that meant nothing, but basically sent me out looking for um, where Universal was keeping all of its masters uh-huh. and where were the artwork was and where was all, where was all the video. How we're going to digitize this and turn it into a real product? Yeah, because the, the 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 first step is making that stuff into digital totally. content. Yeah. And you know, and we all <laughs> we all know how much it's, how sexy metadata is, but how do you describe all this stuff? Right, as soon as you're moving into digital, how do you describe it? And this is even pre search problems, but right. we all came to learn that the hardest thing was going to be the data about all this stuff like where how do you find it how do you find uh uh the music that's that's out there but we at first we had to get it um, yeah. and digitize it so we could have something to sell as a product was
0: the the kind of the ownership uh, who has the rights to these things a, a, a significant well, challenge? Yeah,
1: as always I yeah. mean it's kind of you know who has the rights to do this the record labels will tell you that they own the recording masters and they do that that's the that's the deal they have but you know you also know that there's been you know decades and decades of battles over those masters, right? Who has the copy, who has the, and they were horrible stewards. I mean, I'll just be blunt. The Universal was a horrible steward of its, of its archives, right? I found... Photographs of uh, you know Mot- original photographs of Motown artists, you know, holding up a desk and shoved under a folder, you know, and a desk desk leg up, you know, it was crazy. Wow. Um, we found uh, Jimi Hendrix uh, master tapes in a vault with water dripping into it in in wow. London. I mean, just you know, classic stuff like that. Just like and, and because they had these, they'd made copies of them and they put them in you know the place that they do all the mastering in the Emil Berliner Studios for for uh, in in Europe and. But you know, most of these places of the studios in, in New York, Sony was better than Universal. Um, they had a better sense of archiving than Universal did, which is where I went after Universal. Right. But none of these companies really thought too much about how they were storing this stuff. Archival stuff was not their goal, right? Yeah, they were trying to get stuff out.
0: True, but type decays.
1: Totally. And yeah. especially, I mean, we had you know, one of the places we had was a. Uh, a room where we had four ovens where we would bake tapes because there was this, you know, this thing about in the mid seventies to eighties, there was a certain type of scotch tape that they were recording on Uh and it would separate the emulation. The magnetics would separate. And the only way to bring it back was to literally heat it up to like a hundred and you know, 10 Fahrenheit or something like that. And it would stabilize the tape long enough to get a transfer. So in the recording studios is a whole row of ovens where they were baking tapes to try to recover, um, you know, the, the, the 24 tracks that they'd had. Right. There's
0: another catastrophic batch of Ampex four, five, six in the nineties as well. Totally. It's exactly,
1: there's just a bunch of that kind of stuff. And you, and so that kind of archiving thing, which wasn't really my world, to be honest with you. I mean, I was, it was exciting to do this because I was traveling around figuring out what we were going to do. Um, and we ended up doing something a lot low tech because the, the cost of the archive, which I at some point said, look, in order to recover all this, it's you know, 20 million plus dollars to do this. And they had Boston Consulting Group come in and say, yeah, that sounds about right, and nod sagely at us. And yeah, right. we ended up going to um, actually just sending all the CDs to a place in Seattle and said, rip these and we'll get started. And we'll work on the archiving separately. But in order to get started in digital, we need to just get going. Yeah. So we literally sent our entire catalog over the top you know 10,000 albums to a CD ripping place where students were ripping them just like you would have done for your own home thing. Wow. And it a good quality and got all the metadata right, but it was really to get started so we could figure out what was going on. Sure, sure. And is that what took you to London? So, you know, it's going back and forth a lot. I mean, I was, you know, I was on planes all the time from New York to, to London. And then I f- came back kind of just before 9/11 happened and um I was going to quit. I was actually done with this what I was doing for them and uh Matt Carpenter, who was at Sony at the time, said, do you want to come and work on this other thing, which is now that we got all this stuff digitized, how do we distribute it? How do we work with partners? And I have a problem in Europe because we just need to fix it. And would you go there? Uh, and I was going to go to IDEO. Actually, IDEO had asked me to come and be a product guy at IDEO to work on media stuff. And I thought, that sounds good, but London sounds better. Just right. So it would be a good place to go. And so I went there to run digital distribution for Sony for Europe and Asia. And so from there, we work with all the probably four or 500 different partners. And we went from revenue. That's kind of the explosion period, right, for music at the time. I I wouldn't say it was anything we were doing brilliantly that made us that rich. But we went from a couple hundred thousand dollars in digital revenues to more than a quarter of a billion uh, in 2008 when I left.
0: You were pretty knowledgeable about music when you got there, though. I mean,
1: this is something that's sort of been a thread all the way along. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a huge music nerd and worching record stores I grew up around music. Back when I was wanting to write, music was always the thing I cared about. Um so it was always really important to me. But um and discovery is one of my favorite things. How do you find something new? I've always been interested in that that concept. And uh so going to work for a record company and getting my hands on the archive and then the history was phenomenal. My favorite group at the record labels both places was the uh, the catalog teams, right? The catalog teams are the ones who reissue and remaster and they know what they've got. The frontline guys are like, you know, it's like Groundhog Day, it's always the same thing. They just run through, hey, it's bright and shiny and then they lose their memory and they go away again. But the the institutional memory of record labels are the catalog groups um, and they are amazing. They're just great, great people. Right. And so what was your role in Sony uh, in terms of, you know, sort of the day-to-day? So it was an operational role. I, I think I was VP of digital operations. I think or some, it was at that point I've got some, you know, ridiculous title that they give out. <laughs> yeah. But it was digital business was the, comp, was the group it, it there. And it was in conflict, to be honest with you, with the physical distribution guys who were, you know, kind of the mobsters you'd expect them to be. I mean, it was kind of, it was a very rough and tumble place where you, you know, it was about how many sh- units of vinyl you shipped, right? That was the point. And right. the way we measured our business was very different than we did digitally. So as that world is falling off and dying, I'm in the fast moving shiny group. Uh, and my suggestions are not really, um, because I'm fairly senior at that time, they're they I get to go to the meetings and then, but I make suggestions they don't like to hear, like we should digitize the whole catalog and put it on Napster because it's like radio and like you know that was a, and I got not invited back to certain meetings after that, but, right? Because
0: yeah. I, I see you as, yeah.
1: again being somewhat countercultural within that uh, corporate environment. Well, it was it was harder with Sony than it was. I mean, it was nice because we were building something fast and there was a lot of money happening quickly. Um, and and it. Once we'd built the team out, and it was about 45, 50 people who did the operational thing. But it was working with small partners, right? You know, we worked early on with Last FM, where I ended up going later. Um, we worked with Spotify. We worked with Vodafone. We were working with all these new companies, who and to try to figure out how we were going to make get music to their customers, right, and yeah. our customers. But we were still treating it like a distribution method, right? We were tr- like we were going to ship units to them, and they were going to sell them to customers. We were not actually doing. Uh, direct to consumer sales, which is what I asked to before I left Sony. I was, I was in charge of direct to consumer at Sony where we built out a, a way for Beyonce to sell you stuff directly and Bruce Springsteen to sell t-shirts and Christina Aguilera to sell perfume, which we did. Right. You know, so it was always a, a bit of a new thing. And, but at some point after eight years at Sony is like, I can't do this anymore. There's a little red dot in front of my desk. Where I'm like, what is that? Oh, it's where I've been banging my head for the last four eight years right gonna not going fast enough this is not fun
0: anymore right because around that same time I was yeah. thumping my fist on tables and saying the record companies are getting it all wrong yep. how I mean that's obviously a simplistic view of the world but, but that was the
1: effect how much of that was institutionalized and how many people like you were there there was you know there was always a number of people in the companies who were smart and cared about music right I mean you, you always there, there was a whole lot in the middle that were Deadwood, let's be honest. I mean, mm-hmm. you could have considered me Deadwood from a different angle, right? I There was a lot of people there, right? But it was also a bunch of people who loved music. There was These people didn't start because they wanted to, you know, be bankers. And as as the corporate labels kind of came in, there was a roll-up during the time I was there. You know, Polygram gets acquired. Um, we go from like a bunch of indies to a bunch of majors, and then the majors start buying up the indies. So it's, it's getting really corporate around this time. Yeah. Um, And see, but you still have some great people, you know, some real music heads and they're mostly in places like the archives and in the catalog group and, and they're struggling. They're trying to figure this out. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for that group because I don't think any of them were out of their way to stop people. Mm. There were certainly a lot of banker types at the top. um, And I could name half the heads of those labels and and you, and those are the guys I do think were the bad guys in this. They were really protecting the industry from moving because they were making a lot of money the way they were doing it. Yeah it was peak, you know, I joined in the peak, peak period, right? 40 million in revenues just as Napster hip happens, you know, and you see it hit that iceberg uh, and you're like, okay, we're going down, but there's still people rearranging deck chairs, right? It's, they're like, oh, we can, we need to move this over here. Cause it's going to be fine. Like, no, no, we're sinking now yeah. and it's going <laughs> to sink and we all need to get into boats and we got to figure who gets in the boats and it's the artists who should get in the boats first, please. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, but we didn't do that. You know, we threw a lot of people under the bus during that period. Wow. And, uh, and then last FM. So last FM was, I, you know, I looked at the companies I was working with across Europe and it was exciting because um, I get to work with a lot of them, right? We were talking to people who were doing really cool things. And I'm like, I'm on the wrong side of the table. <laughs> I'm just, I'm negotiating with these guys and I'm trying to figure out how to get them the music. And we did a great job of that. We were, we were very efficient, but the truth was there was like five or six companies that were really worth working with. And uh, last step, i was top of my list because they were really a discovery and, uh, and an indie play higher player. And, um, well, you said you were interested in discovery and they seem yeah. to be doing it pretty well they were well. The, they were the they were the top of this and that time the idea of collaborative filtering and the algorithmic location of stuff was combined with a human right i mean their algorithms were were always based on human need right yeah it wasn't based on a here's some one guy telling you what this is going to look for it's based on well, what are your friends looking at what are your collaboration you know if, if you and i both like the same piece of music Chances what, are, this yeah, yeah, there's going to be an overlap, but there's going to be a good Venn diagram, and they were the best at that right at the time. Right, pre Echo Nest, pre Spotify, all that stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that social uh, paradigm for yeah. for music recommendation was the only thing at the time, and the way that I talked about it was yeah. it's the only
1: thing that could tell you that if you like Prince, you might also like Joni Mitchell. Totally. No other
0: algorithm was going to. They, do wouldn't, that for have, they for you. wouldn't
1: have made those connections, and they were also you know they were a radio model too, right? Which I was, which appealed to me, right? The idea that you didn't need to own music was really interesting. I mean, they had a Spotify. They figured the 2004, they really combined scrobbling, which was the technology that built the data to do this, um, met their radio concept. And, you know, there's a lot of hype about Pandora, but I think it was mostly because it was an American company and their whole genome approach was theoretically novel. But what, Last FM was doing, and the data scientists at Last FM were world class.
0: Yeah, I got to say, the reason class. I like Prince is not because it's got an eight-bar intro and it's got so. a high male vocal and you know it's in a major key, yeah. which seemed to be Pandora's
1: answer to everything. Yeah. They, uh, the genome was. I mean, I, I'm not going to talk shit about the genome. It's a, it was a great idea and it made a lot of sense, but they were really looking at about a million tracks. You know, last FM's database held 120 million. I mean wow. bigger than any record company's catalog. We knew not only what was being released, but we knew what you were playing. And as soon as one person played it, we had it in the database, right? So you so it was stuff that wasn't released. It was everything. It was you know it was really the deepest. And it's still deeper than what Spotify has now, right? There was just a wider range. Who's got that? Last FM still does. Right. Okay. So yeah. that's still proprietary? Uh so. Yes and no. So what was exciting for me at the time, at, outside of Last.fm, the only other place that was really holding onto this kind of music was uh, Music Brains, right. Robert, Robert K's uh, um, nonprofit, And I sit on the board of it still to this day because, um, and they have a bunch of small projects and they are used by all the big guys. You know, they don't always like to admit that they use that data, but Robert's been collecting um, release data and, and, and a way to, essentially create the metadata of the internet that way. And, it, and it, it's wide, right? His, his goal is to be like the internet archive, right? Uh, right. Okay. So he's, he's got that goal. Um, they need a little more support to do that, but I think it's a great way. They've got a product called listening brains, which I think is very much like what last FM was doing. And um, yeah, it's a, it was an interesting time. I think last FM didn't know what it had. Which is why I left. Eventually, CBS acquires Last FM, and I'm like, I'm out now. This is not going to be the right. Because my my next question was going to be what happened at
0: Last FM because it, it kind of d- done under yeah. the Yeah, right
1: well, so I, I, I joined there um, just as CBS has acquired that thing, and some of the founders are done at mm-hmm. that point. And you kind of moving moving from a founder to a, a, a running a company differently. It was so they hired me as they had a product for there, and uh, I was excited by the job. I'm like, this is going to be great. This is going to be fun. Uh, and for a while, CBS did leave us alone. Um, And then they didn't. Right. And then at that point they started trying to roll it up into some of their other properties and we get moved out of radio, which is where it was, uh, into, um, interactive. Uh Um, and let's just say the interactive guys and I didn't get along, uh, very well. So I lasted about another six months there after that happened. But, um, I never quite convinced them the most important thing here was the data, right? The data and the listening profiles and to be the connective tissue across services and to have a single profile, I still keep my Last FM profile running. I mean, it's Spotify still scrabbles. It still tells me what I've been listening to. It's like Fitbit for music. I mean, you can always get that music to, through. Um, and Spotify does have that. And the Echo Nest guys really took the Last FM playbook and ran with it. Yeah. Um, and credit to them; they were smart guys. Brian and Paul Amir and that crew was all really, really smart. And so their acquisition of you know hundred people, uh, Last FM had a, a data team of maybe eight to ten. Um, wow. So the size that we were, the punching above our weight so much that period. Yeah. The diaspora of programming and AI knowledge and, and machine learning knowledge was from that group has all gone to. It's gone to Apple. It's gone to Expedia. It's gone to Netflix. It's gone everywhere. Um, but CBS never knew what they had. And you went kind of sideways from there. Yeah. Uh, let see what I do after that. I went after that. La- I, I took a year off actually and said, what do I want to do? And I work for a uh, interactive gaming company called um, sensible object who built a, an interactive physical game. that was like reverse Jenga. You built a tower and it created a world on a tablet. And when the tablet, when the tower falls over it, the, uh, the game ends, uh, I worked for the BBC on their music app that they were building. This has now become their word and music app. That's a little like NPR one. It's a Kind of a podcasting and music app that yep. that I like with Chris Kimber, who's a fantastic guy there. Uh, and then I went to Samsung, um, which was another odd sideways run. It was that was a wider thing. It was no longer just music; it was film, music, games, everything. Uh, and I lasted a year there, fascinating year, um, learning about Samsung and how that culture worked. But ultimately, realizing I was going to be ineffective there.
0: Right, right. So, so where have you, I guess, ended up?
1: If so so that yeah
0: I, I didn't, I didn't actually
1: know what I was going to yeah. do next. I thought, well this is weird. I don't want to do and so I was looking around for companies. Maybe I'll jump out of music and I love music, but maybe it's time to jump ship and do something new. Uh and then a recruiter came and said, "Look, I've got this company and they're a B2B company and I want you to go talk to them because they're they they sell music for film and television and they're um they're and I'm like, I've never heard of them, but you should talk to them." And I went to Abbey Road to meet the founder Andrew Sonics, who was in the chief uh, executive officer was a guy called Chris Blakeson at the time. And uh, I'd found out they'd been around for 17 years. They'd been making music. And the first thing that really struck me was their artists and their composers were all making really, really good money because sync is a, an interesting problem. And what they'd done is they'd solved the sync problem, right? I mean, in, in a lot of ways, the, um, production music is used. You, you need it for everything. You need not just the main track for the for the for the intro of a television show, but everything else, all the other music that goes with it. Yeah. Um, and they just started with a, a really basic concept of being super simple to license, owning the recording right and the publishing right in one place, which are usually kept separate in the music industry. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to license Radiohead, you have to go to talk to the. Recording label, the Parlophone EMI group, but you'd also have to talk to Radiohead's publishers, which were often in a different group, right? They were Warner at the time. So you've now got two different people who both don't really want to work together, and it's just making it hard to license music. Mm -hmm. So they made it simple, made it really inexpensive, but then the smart thing was that publishing, right, when it gets recorded, when it gets done on television, it gets broadcast that royalty rate's the same as Radiohead's rate. So it's not, there's, those are statutory rates. And so by having it simple and making it easy to license and making it really fast meant that they quickly became a dominant player in the music space, particularly in Europe. And How does this differ from something like KPM
0: and those kind of music libraries that uh, you get?
1: APM so or Killer Tracks or Sony are all owned by a major, right? Ah. Um, so most of them. Um, Extreme is owned by Sony, I think. Killer Tracks is owned, I forget. I forget how they break down exactly, but they're all broken down by it. They, they have an association with the majors. And what they generally do is they keep them separate, right? They, they like, oh, I don't want any more, artists shouldn't go anywhere near the production music group. Right. Um, and we'll have this other stuff and it's largely generic and it's, um, some of them are quite well recorded, but essentially it's clip art, right? It's clip art music, right? Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. these places. And that's really true of the low end too, the Epidemic Sounds and the premium beat. These are all companies that are doing really basic, it's fine, it works great, but it's not, It's not made by an artist who cares about what they're doing. And so we went out and got people who scored films and advertisements and games. And we found these folks and said, we're going to, you're going to record something for us. We're going to put it online. It's going to get used, you know, 11 offices around the world that are going to sell this to TV and film and advertising groups. Um, But we want you to make the music that you make, right? And it's meant for film and television, but it is, it's a sync, we're a sync first music company. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting because one of the things when I first came across Audio Network, I went, hang on a second. I recognize some of these names. Yeah. Um, and and from jazz and yeah. from
1: electronic music and yeah. yeah I mean Tim Garland is an amazing jazz uh, musician who's been around for, and he's done you know several albums for us right we have uh, you know we have Johnny Lloyd who's in the Mystery Jets he's one, one of our indie and he's, and he's done a ton of Britpop guitar bass music that's great you know um, we have our DJ uh, Radio One DJ it's, it's just people like to come make stuff for us because it's Most of these guys don't just stop with the one record they make for the record company. They're always making music. Sure. And not everything is designed to go on and be used. You know, they make an instrumental version and cut down versions for us. It's designed to be used in a production, which is quite a fun job, right? You know, you see where Trent Reznor's gone with Atticus Ross making it's not the same as his nine inch nails music. Right. You, but you can do that. Right. Yeah. Musicians are, can work in both areas. And when they find they can do that with us, they get really excited and they like to sign with us. We're not exclusive. We don't require you to sign your life away and sign your um, rights. away. you do sign the rights to us to represent you in, um, in the, in the masters, right? These are the masters belong to the audio network group, but you always keep your publishing and that publishing split is 50, 50. So it's really quite clear, which is not what you get when you go to most publishers is a 50, 50 split.
0: Looking back over this journey from where you've ended up, does this make sense as a narrative in retrospect?
1: You know, I think it, it does in the sense that, um, What's exciting to me about this group now is it's one thing to make film and television, but it's also exciting to watch what's happening with the internet again and the democratization of media. Right, we're sitting across from each other right now in a room, and you've got amazing equipment here that would not have been available to you ten years ago. Sure. Right? And the and and the way to get it out to people is is just so. For me, making music for creators is the next real excitement. I mean, it's great we've done it for the. Five ten thousand production companies out there you already know, but it's the next twenty thousand production companies you don't know that I'm excited by. Right, the um, Francis Ford Coppola famously said, you know, he, the next Coppola is a, you know, a fourteen year old girl in Des Moines you don't know yet. That's and she's going to make this because she's going to have all these tools. Right, Robert Rodriguez is here in Austin. You know, famously, his book Rebel Without a Crew is all about how do you make media for no money and how do you become. You know, and you can do that with the internet and you can do that with, with the music we create. So I'm excited to see what people do with the music, making it accessible, making it more range. So it does make sense to me that it's a natural. Extension. And it sounds like the stuff that you got excited about in mosaic yeah, back in the Same day. thing. Yeah. Same you know, I, I wrote a column for um for Mackerel back in ninety four called um I think it was Let a Thousand Flowers Bloom. It was about personal pages, right? It was about blogging. We didn't call it blogging then, but it was like you want a voice, right? You want to say something to the world. This is a phenomenal way to get it out there. And it's, you know, freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. And we all own one now. Right. Right. So we have the ability to reach a lot of people now and with the distribution tools we have. And this just makes music democratic as well. Because not everyone can make a, a you know, a, a beautifully scored soundtrack with 120 piece orchestra in Abbey Road. Right. Sure. But, you know, you can now as a creator get access to that music on our catalog for, you know, will license it for you globally worldwide right right that to me is very exciting right that means more people can use what we do now if you're a high-end corporation who's doing this we're going to charge you more than that yeah but you know you as an individual we should be able to do that does that make you an optimistic person I'm incredibly optimistic despite my I like to think of myself as a pragmatic optimist right you have to actually get shit done um, in the end you make you have to make compromises but you have to think how do I get it done instead of just holding my um, my ideals to an unreasonable standard What's um, next, do you think, for you? It's um, a good, you know, it's a good question. We're at an interesting point with the company, right? I mean, it's been 17 years of this company. We've turned a corner. We've got a lot of new uh, executive talent and a great new marketing person who's come on who's really starting to make the stories behind our music pop. If you went to the website today, you'll start to see that, right? You'll start to see that the stories behind the music is becoming important. Um, to us. And it's not the case when you look at production companies, we've got a great new salesperson who's come in. And so I'm excited about the next five years for this company. I'm hoping that I want to stay at it. You know, we've got some exciting things coming with them.
0: Well, you're a storyteller. So there's a place for you clearly.
1: It's yeah. And it's fun. And it's a fun place to be. And I, as a product guy, I mean, I, now I, you know, I made the switch from being the guy who looked in the vaults for things to building stuff now. And I got a taste of the last FM and I don't think we're done making things here, getting ways for people to get that music is exciting for me. So we've done a, plug plugin for Premiere pro. So you can find our music within the editing software that pretty much anyone can use, Right. you know, and I'm, I'm excited by some of the, um, generative music things that are coming in, in the space where you can take a piece of music and turn it and shape it into what you need it to be. Um, I view that as a collaborative tool, not a replacement tool. There's a lot of people saying robots are going to write our music. And I think that's like saying synthesizers are going to destroy music, right? It's just not true. It's just a new tool. It's a new element. Absolutely. Matthew, thanks very much for your time today. Thank
0: you. That's Matthew Horn, head of product for Audio Network, which was recently acquired by Entertainment One. And that's the MTF podcast. By now, you should know what to do. Subscribe, share, like, rate, review, say nice things about it on social media. And while you do that, we'll go and prepare the next one. Seems like a fair deal. Also, we're going to be in Croatia this week for MTF Pooler. We've partnered with InfoBip, one of Europe's fastest growing software unicorns, where we're going to be hosting the MTF Labs with a bunch of high-level expert MTFers and a selection of InfoBip's brilliant engineers and thinkers. More on that across all our channels. We're Music Tech Fest on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and now r slash Music Tech Fest on Reddit. We'll catch you there and back here next week. In the meantime, have a great one. Talk soon. Cheers.